Now the questions may be addressed using the microphone over here, or if you're up here near the front, please come and use this microphone as well. Hi, my name is Moira Watson. I wanted to thank you both for doing such a great job in the quick fill-in. Um, I'm just hoping you could fill us in a little bit more about P16. We're all familiar with P3, but maybe <laughs> if you could just elaborate on that model. Sure. Thank um, you. The P16 model basically is a coordination model. So um, in the states, a number of uh, communities have developed what they call our P16 councils. Um, and the P16 councils are looking at ways to um, articulate how we manage the transitions from um, the elementary school or the pre-kindergarten program into kindergarten, you know, how you manage that transition, how you manage transition to junior high, to high school, high school on to college. And so looking at kind of the competency models, what are the expectations of the entity that's accepting the students, um, and trying to better align curricula so that, um, for example, at Austin Community College, we have faculty that are working with um, the high school teachers in our region around specific areas such as government or, or uh, math and science topics, and they're looking at what an entering college freshman should have um, and then what does the high school need to do to prepare those students. Um, they're doing a number of different kinds of initiatives to promote the whole notion of a college-going culture, um, whether it be working with families to, um, because many of the students, and you know, you face the same um, issues with your First Nations, uh, Medi, Inuit uh, population as we do with um, Hispanics and often African Americans that have not been well prepared to enter in this system. Um, our Hispanic population is not typically, um, many of them have not had their first time college students, so they haven't um, had the preparation of someone who's already had someone enter college and so helping parents understand the importance of this in this this economy and the, and those are some of the kinds of uh, challenges that we face and so working together as a community to ensure that folks are prepared as well as um, have the expectation that they're going to continue on to post-secondary education. One of the things that we're exploring right now as a college is dual enrollment. <clears throat> what dual enrollment means basically is a grade 9, 10, or 11 student can actually enroll into a college-accredited course taught by uh, a high school uh, <clears throat> instructor that meets the qualifications of the, uh, the course requirements, but they would actually get advanced credit. They would receive credit both in, in, in the high school credit system, in the high school system as well as, as, as advanced credit into the college system. So what that allows us to do is start to track some of those students that have aspirations to move through post-secondary quickly, <clears throat> understand their career paths and are very motivated. It also creates an opportunity for those students that may not see post-secondary as a career option for them. Uh, again, especially from those families where post-secondary is a first-generation activity, and many of them have never experienced post-secondary in their parents' generation. And so it starts to encourage some of the issues we're, we're seeing with attrition. And I was mentioning at our table today that Alberta has the lowest uh, K-12 uh, secondary completion in our country, and southern Alberta has the lowest in our province, which would tell us that we have the lowest completion rate in all of Canada here. And so part of what we have to do is find <clears throat> ways of uh, preventing that attrition. Uh, my name is Van Christou, and uh, may I 
preface my remarks by thanking Austin for dealing with a sudden crisis so effectively and bringing these good speakers to us today on such short notice. But thank you both for the, an excellent presentation. Uh, that, that was really remarkably well done, especially on such short notice. As a person who's been interested in education for many years, I uh, have a, a strong belief that uh, autonomy is very important in higher education. I worry about government beginning to decide the direction of, a, of our institutions of higher education in this country. Um, it sounds good, it can be efficient, and it's nice to cooperate with them because, because that's where the uh, money comes from and you know, he who pay, pays the piper calls the tune type of thing. But we can get into a trap where governments can make enormous mistakes in the direction that we're heading. Are you not worried, this is my question, are you not worried that the whole democratic process is endangered by this involvement by government in education? Well, she can start and I'll finish. <laughs> well, yeah, really. <laughs> now, I mean, I think you raise a very important point. Um, the foundation of um, higher education is academic freedom, the ability of uh, a faculty to um, have the freedom to express controversial views, and um, we certainly um, – that's a major issue for our college and university system. There's a lot of pressure um, in the states for accountability. Um, the kind of testing model that's happened in our um, – Post, uh, in our uh, secondary and elementary systems, and there's tremendous pushback from colleges and universities to uh, resist that pressure. At the same time, we have to demonstrate that what we're doing is effective and that we're preparing um, citizens for the future. I, I mean, that's why I think it's very important to have a comprehensive general education as well as, you know, um, at the college level and in the university level, that there's a certain core of courses that are there to educate um, citizens. That's what we want. And and if we're preparing people to be lifelong learners, you, you saw the jobs are changing very rapidly. And so we have to prepare people to be critical thinkers. Um, we have access to so much information, but how do you make meaning of that? How do you create knowledge from that? That's a key issue of our times, and I think we have to resist. I mean, we have to we have to play, like you said, that, um, at some level, but at the same time, I think we need to be very cautious about letting um, government enter into the management of our systems. And I would just supplement that by saying that government um, <clears throat> certainly is our our public purse watchdog, and uh, we do have uh, <clears throat> uh, governed boards that uh, provide us with that oversight. I think the the driving reason bef behind why they want to uh, perhaps get into the weeds a little more than they should uh, is because they're looking for efficiencies. They're looking for um, <clears throat> uh, a seamless transferability that has been an ongoing problem inside post-secondary for many generations. Uh, I think that we're best to work alongside our communities and alongside industry that are going to employ our graduates. Uh, they have a better sense of where the need is and, and, and how um, <clears throat> what kind of skill sets and competencies that need to be in place. Um, I think the other piece that I would throw in there is that uh, uh, we've already seen government take some pretty bold steps. Uh, healthcare would be a good example of that. Um, 
Uh, our president had an opportunity to meet with the uh, the health super board, who was thanking the outgoing Chinook uh, <clears throat> Health Regional Board on their way out. Um, but there's been some very significant errors made there. And I'm, I'm for, I'm, if there is a silver lining in all that is it hasn't been going well because uh, <clears throat> we were very concerned that that was going to, in fact, happen to the post-secondary system and that the collapsing of all of these independent governed boards would uh, would take place and a, and a super board would, would emerge. Um, again, I think what we're seeing is that government sees a <clears throat> has an agenda. Their agenda is to try and create innovation and excellence, but the way in which they're going about it is becoming, um, I think, less and less, uh, um, well, creative, but uh, less and less uh, appetizing to them because they're seeing that they're perhaps not the experts in the room. So. Hi, my name is uh, Knut Peterson. Thanks for coming, and I want to congratulate uh, the colleagues on the way you treat uh, international students. Uh, and you have uh, a couple, three of them, who gives you great uh, advertisement out in the world these days. I'm talking about the cross-country runners from Kenya. Mm-hmm. It's probably a pretty cheap advertisement for, for you guys to have these guys running around the country and well, winning. we paid for them to have the Kodiaks across their <laughs> chest. Trust me. Out of my pocket. Thank you. <clears throat> Just a comment on the last question. Uh, and in Alberta, it may be the same thing, but are you not worried about corporate uh, influence on your, on your, the way you design your courses and stuff like that? <clears throat> You know, I think it's there. Um, I, I think that we have to be careful of where the line is drawn in terms of their influence. We have them as members of our advisory committees. We make sure that we we uh, we test our curriculum against them. Uh, there certainly is uh, an open for business, particularly around sponsorship and fundraising, that corporations have a distinct interest in aligning themselves with post-secondary institutions. So that's always going to be um, uh, an interesting game to play with them. Um, I do think that what we've seen just in the last five to ten years is that many corporations have shifted a lot of their support to post-secondary educations away from philanthropy into corporate sponsorship. And so they're looking at a, at a business case model now as to why they would put dollars into your institution. And that they're looking for visibility. They're looking for all of those things that their marketing folks and their uh, executive teams will deem a good return on their investment. And unfortunately, the days of uh, <clears throat> a gifts from uh, corporations that are what I would consider uh, uh, non-directed, meaning that we can basically take and those funds and do good things are, are gone, that they are very prescriptive um, and deliberate in terms of where they want to place their funds and why. Um, we can manage that, and we do a very effective job of doing that. Uh, not always, but for, for the most part. Um, but we also understand that they are part of our, our landscape. And as if you get an understanding, we uh, a student... Uh, pays for just under 30% of their education. The government pays for about uh, 50% of it. So there's a 20% gap in there that comes from our ancillary services and also comes from corporate uh, and individual philanthropy. And that's an increasing gap that's going to continue to grow in the future. Uh, Am I allowed a secondary question? Uh, Could you expand a little bit upon your environmental, especially, especially wind power, for which you won a prestigious award. Could you 
Tell us where you're going with the wind power and... Well, we're going to Chicago this weekend. Uh, Chicago is actually hosting the uh, the American Wind Energy Association conference, and uh, this is the largest uh, wind conference in the world. There's 9,000 delegates and about 1,500 uh, corporations that will descend on on, on the Windy City, yes, a good appropriate place to put it. But just to give you an example, uh, there was 1,500 delegates five years ago. So that is, uh, you know, catapulted itself. The wind industry um, just uh, right now estimates they have an immediate uh, number of uh, vacancies of about 10,000 technicians just in Canada alone. Um, but if you look at the Department of Energy in the United States, um, Canada... Both have made commitments by 2030 to have uh, anywhere between 25 and 30 percent of their power generated from alternative energy sources. Uh, we've been offering a wind technician program for about five years now, and we've recently, in the last two years, signed on to be uh, internationally certified under uh, the BZE. Don't even want to go there; it's an acronym for um, a lot of big German words. Uh, but what it does do is it makes our st students portable anywhere. They can work on any wind turbine in the world. And um, we just had a, vi a visit from Vestas. Vestas is large, the largest wind energy company uh, in the world. Um, on the ground in China right now, they have 1,900 employees and three factories. And that's going to they expect that will grow 10 times in the next five years. Uh, the rest of the world combined cannot keep up uh, to the projected wind energy consumption that China is pr pr projecting in the next uh, in the next five to ten years. The rest of the world combined is smaller than China's market to them. And if you bet that Vestas is there, so is GC, GE, Entercon. Um, so part of what we're looking to do is, is grow our program, a, a green careers program that includes not only the technician, the technologist, the wind farm manager, and looking into applied research around uh, conservation, uh, wildlife corridors and management, uh, noise pollution, uh, visual pollution, siting of farms, and looking at a lot of uh, issues that industry face around <clears throat> the wear and tear of their equipment um, as they uh, put this into a Canadian context, particularly at minus 35 uh, uh, degree temperatures and 100 kilometer winds. Uh, so, all right. Other questions? Uh, Graham Greenlee is my name. Uh, I just wondered if if you go on Twitter and you start getting hundreds of messages, questions, and whatnot every day, there's no way in the world that you have time time to answer them all. <laughs> so uh, how will you deal with an issue like this? I hired Gwen. <laughs> Actually, uh, no. I One person. Well, honestly, it is becoming an increasing uh, issue. And, and I'll tell you that we have a very small uh, communications and marketing shop. And, uh, and our capacity to deal with the online pieces are becoming uh, very difficult. And it's adding a fair bit of workload to an existing staff that are still dealing with a lot of the traditional ways in which folks communicate with us. But I can tell you in the United States, there are entire departments of, uh, of online um, teams that all they do is return... Uh, these text messages and these Twitter messages and, and respond to blogs. And it's become a huge, huge uh, drain on our, our resources. And maybe you want to well, add to I, that. I do think um, some of it becomes a little bit over the top. Like, <laughs> I don't really want to know what everyone's doing every second of the day. Um, but but uh, I do think that 
we are challenged with facing um, these changing technologies, um, both at sort of the institutional level and then at, in the classroom as well. I'm a faculty member. I am a digital immigrant. You know, my children are they're approaching digital natives, but they're not. You know, it's these young kids. My grandchild is a is a uh, will be a digital native where he comes in and it's technology is just a part of everyday life. It's not an add-on. And so, you know, one of the challenges we face is how do you get faculty up to speed? So, I mean, going into Second Life and having an avatar is like a huge challenge <laughs> for someone like me. I'm like, okay, now what am I going to do with this? And, and you know, just being able to envision the possibilities of it um, is is another key thing. So it's a big challenge. Hi, my name is Pat Greenlee. Um, I don't know if this is totally in your field of expertise or not, but I was just a little bit upset when I read about the, I think they call it a gophonator or something like that. Rotonator. Rotonator, <laughs> that was it. Um, and it seems to me that if if the environment is is on the top of the list of things that are important, doesn't seem to me that that's setting a very good example of how to live with respect in the environment that that it was attracting some badgers and yes they make holes but maybe it would be cheaper to have somebody fill in the big holes that are if they're bothering something and do what the call it the university does and attract some nice Swainson's hawks to come and take care of those gophers free of charge. And um, I'd just like to know what you, what your take on that issue is of, of how the college could be setting a more friendly, environmentally, um, environmentally friendly um, example for, for those of us who care about such things. Well, I can tell you that it's a divided issue on our campus. Um, those that work in the facility side uh, struggle with all of those issues on a daily basis. And I think on the faculty side, I think many of you might have caught Dick Charge, who's one of our faculty, who actually did his uh, doctoral studies on the Richardson ground squirrels. So um, I think what we are doing is looking at some other alternative methods, and I think some of those natural uh, <clears throat> process of... Uh, of uh, nature taking its course will 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 be p part of those considerations moving forward. I think sometimes what happens is that um, folks in a facility's capacity uh, move ahead and make decisions without uh, the rest of the institution being completely aware of what's going on. Um, so I think that we're s taking a step back now and looking at what our our next steps need to be um, on the humane side and on the on the environmental uh, issues as well. So. Yeah, we're very aware that this is a heated subject. So, My name is Ed Bardock. Uh, Austin, I want to, uh, I'm glad I came here today because you said when uh, Dr. Edwards uh, said she couldn't speak today, you said a prayer, and you've renewed my faith in the power of prayer with two excellent speakers. All right, good. <laughs> my question uh, if I recall correctly, you said about 30% of your uh, student enrollment is foreign. Or out, and of, out of market. Out, out of market. Mm -hmm. uh, universities are doing this too, and they're sending people overseas and other places to get people. 
Coupling that with the decline in government uh, grants to colleges and universities, isn't there a danger if you are up to 30% that your mandate of uh, really supplying education to students in Alberta and I would say in Canada uh, may be under some strain as you cater to make sure you've got that revenue because you said you had about a 20% gap there. Mm -hmm. So as you try and fill in that gap, are your efforts going to be diverted more and more to attracting people who will pay generous amounts rather than catering to the mandate that I think the public in Alberta started up the institution? Yes, and it's a very good point. Um, A couple of things that happen there. The government... uh, creates what's called catchment areas for post-secondary institutions. And ours is really from uh, Claire's home south, uh, Nanton south, through to the Crow's Nest Pass, uh, all the way out to about foremost. And what what we've seen over the last number of years is that there has been a decline in rural enrollments. And what happens is our, our infrastructure costs go up, in fact, not down. As a result of that, our facility costs, the, the inflationary indexing continues to happen. And at, at some point, we hit a critical point where uh, we simply don't have the resources to continue to offer that. A good example of that was our agricultural technologies program. We were having students in the numbers of seven to eight to nine enrolled in a class and makes a very difficult <clears throat> case to try and um, continue to deliver those kinds of programming without supplementing that with outside of this catchment area students. So we're attracting from Saskatchewan, Manitoba, southern BC now, and internationally, not so much into the ag tech program, but um, into a number of other programs because we have capacity <clears throat> uh, vacancies there that we can fill. So this isn't about taking a seat away from an Albertan or a southern Albertan, absolutely not. But if we want to maintain the same level and standards of quality of instruction and delivery and facilities and technology in the classroom, um, we have to find those supplemental uh, resources to do that and, and students to take part in that. The other thing that I would argue, too, is that um, a lot of those immigrants that are coming to, to our country uh, for education stay here. And they start to take on responsibilities and, and employment in a number of positions that often um, we look upon as being beneath us. And they, they step into all sorts of roles that uh, fill a need in our workforce. Um, so there is always that sensitivity, and, and Southern Alberta will always be our primary catchment. Um, but we're simply looking at the fact that it's, it's about growth and survival of our institution and making sure we maintain a competitiveness. The other piece is it adds a global, global uh, in, um, element to our, our delivery. We have students that come from around the world that speak ma- many languages, and the cultural um, <coughs> influence that creates on southern Albertans that have never gone anywhere and never experienced another culture in another part of the world is quite tremendous. Um, when we have... Uh, uh, international days or, or weeks or, or First Nations events, our international students come out in droves and participate, and they're very engaged in a lot of the campus activities. But we find that the, the relationships they deven- develop with Southern Albertans is, is quite tremendous, and they, they continue to last for, for, uh, for many, many uh, decades to come. So we find that it really does create a global, uh, a global student and a global thought <coughs> process on our campus, too. So... Other questions? Yes, Lisa. 
Hi. Um, my name is Lisa Lambert, and um, like you, Linda, I'm a full-time PhD student, and I hold down four jobs as well. Um, <laughs> because I'm part of this new workforce that you're talking about, right, that um, I've been Twittering and, uh, <laughs> and text messaging while you've been speaking. I'm sorry. Um, Multitasking. <laughs> And that really points to my question. Um, one of my jobs is a, a sessional instructor at the university, and I find that the relationship between instructor and student now is quite different than it was when I started university in the 80s. Um, in the 80s, it was typical that you would make an appointment to see your professor. You would go to the appointment. You often made the appointment through a secretary. Um, these things don't exist anymore. Um, my students Facebook me. They uh, None of them have found me on Twitter yet, but... Um, they find my blog, whatever. There's an immediacy uh, or a request for immediacy, I suppose, as part of it. I am never not working, according to them. Even though I'm a sessional instructor with one course, I'm meant to be constantly available to them. So I just wonder if you wanted to speak to some of the um, kind of workplace relationship differences under this new workforce. Well... As a faculty member, I'd be happy to <laughs> um, address that. I mean, I do think there is an expectation. I teach a couple of um, distance learning classes, and um, you no longer are teaching a group of students. You're teaching an individual student. So it's a one-on-one -on -one relationship almost. And so um, that requires a, a tremendous amount of time of faculty. And, and I think it's, uh, it's important for faculty to just set expectations up front. You know, these. This is when I'm going to be responsive. You know, so so the sense of immediacy. You just have to sort of moderate their expectations because I I do think you can never have be off work, and that's um, to me that's not being a healthy whole person. And since I'm a child development person, that's kind of where I come from. Um, and so I, I do think that um, it does impact. Um, class sizes, for example, because in the past people thought, oh, distance learning, that doesn't take a lot of, you know, you don't see the students face-to-face. -face. Well, it requires more time and effort than a class in-class session. And so, you know, I do think the filters aren't there. Um, sometimes we just have to teach students how to um, be respectful, some, some of the communications. Um, some folks will limit access of students, like they won't have students be friends on Facebook, that kind of thing. Um, but I think it, it raises tremendous challenges, and I'm not sure we've figured it out yet, frankly. I, I would say particularly to sessional instructors, and you're a good example of that, it, it, it becomes an increasingly more difficult thing because the compensation for sessional instructors is not uh, <clears throat> in line with the, 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 the amount of time that you do spend with students. And, uh, and so I think we have an issue, and I can tell you that uh, we do have a numerous faculty that uh, hit the wall um, and, and do go on stress leave because of the volume of activity. And at a college level, many of them will teach uh, somewhere in as many as twice as many courses as a university counterpart just because we are a teaching institution, not teaching and research primarily. So many faculty at the university will have that... Uh, uh, that release time for research, whereas many of our faculty are teaching four and five uh, days a, a week and full full days. On top of that, they have all of those other responsibilities. So the issue of changing the way in which we deal with those students, uh, we have to, what we're looking now is if we're adding more to their plate, what are we taking off their plate? And that's going to be the big challenge moving forward. Yeah, I don't think we have an answer yet, but it's certainly on, the, <clears throat> on our minds and wakes me up at four in the morning as a member of the senior leadership team. So, would you like to 
to address the way in which um, the relationship between the university and the college is evolving? Well, that's a very interesting question. I, I often, and our president often gets asked, why is there not more articulation between the college and the university? Um, we're in a very unique position. Um, we're one of two uh, <clears throat> communities of our size in Western Canada that have both a, a large college and a large university that have been long established in this community that started out collectively together as one institution. And, uh, and um, many of you will know and perhaps took classes in the Cousins Building, that that was the, uh, the home of the University of Lethbridge. Um, what the biggest challenge we run into is that, and I'll get into my economic modeling here for a second, is that um, a university does not want to become a two-year institution. And what I mean by that is that the economies um, of scale are there in the first and second years of university classes because they'll have two to 300 students in a class. Um, if they simply become a third and fourth year institution, uh, they may have very small class sizes which don't provide the kinds of tuition resources necessary to continue to operate as effectively. You have an institution that's also in transition. You have two institutions also in transition. One that has been traditionally a two-year diploma uh, <coughs> uh, graduate um, engine um, that's now moving into bachelors of technology, applied research, uh, applied degrees, uh, all sorts of uh, credentialing within uh, within industry. You've got a university that is now trying to catch up on the research side of the equation. Um, I was a graduate of the University of Lethbridge. It was completely an undergraduate teaching university when I came here. Um, it is now trying to catch up to the University of Alberta, the University of Calgary, and many other uh, research-intensive institutions. It has some very strong research, particularly in neuroscience, but in the other faculties, they have a lot of catch-up to do, and there's a fair bit of, uh, if you took, I think the, um, the research granting was somewhere in about the $30 million range a year, and I think that may have <coughs> grown considerably with neuroscience, but the, just to give you an example, I came from the University of Alberta, and uh, we had a billion... $1.2 billion budget annually, and about $500 million of that is, was completely research. Um, so there's a significant uh, shift in where this university is headed and, and where the college is headed. The challenge becomes how to find those synergies where we're not competing with each other, because we do compete for the number of students that exist in this particular catchment area. But what we have to do is spend some more time focusing on how we can complement each other. Because Southern Alberta, and particularly Lethbridge, is very attractive to out-of-market students because they can come here, they can start their journey at the college and finish it at the university. This is a great place to live and, and, and go to school, um, and particularly because we do have a number of laddering opportunities, and so we continue to grow that. Uh, the challenge isn't with the senior administrative teams. Um, it generally lies within the faculties. Thank you. I want to uh, tell you uh, both that all these gray hairs cannot escape the advances of technology. I have a wedding on Saturday in which the young couple met on the Internet. <clears throat> and we watched their engagement party through YouTube. <laughs> so, I want, to, uh, thank, I want to thank on behalf of the group here today the both of you for coming on short notice and making a lively presentation. We wish you well in your work. Thank, thank you. Thank you very much. We'll see you all on Twitter.